Hello and welcome to Critical to Your Success. Thanks for joining me. I am your host, Rachel Park. I'm a critical care nurse, academic and researcher from Auckland, New Zealand. This is the podcast where I talk to critical care nurses, allied healthcare team members and academics about what has been critical to their success. And I do hope you've been enjoying the episode so far. This is episode number nine, recorded in July 2019. And today I talk with Natalie Anderson. Natalie is a staff nurse in the emergency department at Auckland City Hospital and a professional teaching fellow and PhD candidate at the University of Auckland here in New Zealand. She has over 20 years of acute clinical experience across pre-hospital, emergency and the critical care environments. She also has a background in psychology and including a Master of Science in Health Psychology. She is passionate about improving the preparation and support of health professionals so they can thrive in their work. She's published research into nurses' first experiences with patient death, and her PhD explores paramedic experiences with resuscitation decision-making. In this episode, Natalie and I talk about whether people really understand what nurses do, what it is like to be a new graduate nurse in the ICU, the importance of volunteer service and mentors, and the importance of cross-disciplinary teaching. We also talk about death and dying, how we process these situations, how we cope and move on, and how we can look after ourselves and our colleagues. We also explore valuable lessons learnt from her paramedic research, which could be enacted in the nursing and ICU environments. So grab a cuppa, sit back, and enjoy the interview with Natalie Anderson. Right, thank you. My guest today is Natalie Anderson. Natalie is a professional teaching fellow here in the School of Nursing at Auckland University. And that's where we're sitting today to have this lovely chat. So thank you, Natalie, for uh, sitting down with me for the next little while and talking about you and where you've come to um, at this stage. So not only do you work as a teaching fellow here at the university, you also work as a registered nurse um, across the road from where we are today at Auckland City Hospital. And you work in the emergency department there. I do, yes. <laughs> and you also are a PhD candidate here at the um, university. So lots to talk about in all the different facets of your life. <laughs> Excellent. So um, having this dual background in emergency nursing and in psychology as well, um, sort of has you know is what you carry along with you through your PhD studies. So. Tell us about how you've got to this point with having all these jobs <laughs> and this very varied background. Oh, okay. Um, so I guess uh, when I left high school, I had absolutely no idea what I wanted to do. <laughs> and um, I wonder if that probably is true for many people when mm. they leave high school. I didn't really love high school. Um, and I went to, I was, had very supportive parents, um, although though no, none, no one in my family had done a degree before. Mm. So, you know, it's a first generation to do that. Uh, I went off and did a Bachelor of Arts and uh, looked at sort of psychology and organisation studies and thought maybe I'd become an organisational psychologist. Uh-huh. <laughs> 
And although I haven't become an organisational psychologist and that's not where I ended up, I still really felt like I benefited from three years of uh, you know, higher education, a chance to be thinking really critically about things and working mm-hmm. out what I was really interested in and did all sorts of interesting papers around philosophy and sociology. Uh, and at the same time I was working uh, as a healthcare assistant, uh, working with older people and I also uh, was doing quite a lot of work for St John uh, mm-hmm. in that kind of capacity and I realised that health was an area that I could have matched myself in mm-hmm. so developed an interest in health psychology and when I finished my Bachelor of Arts I decided to uh, go and do my nursing training. Yeah. So that was quite a change. And did you go straight into doing I did, yeah. yeah. So from one degree to another. Um, <laughs> it Honestly, um, I hope Dad doesn't listen to this, but he was uh, pretty he was disappointed because I had been invited to go on and do a master's degree mm-hmm. uh, and I'd, I'd done quite well academically and, mm-hmm. and so I'd had some opportunities kind of laid out for me and, and obviously in a family where people hadn't been to university before it was quite exciting mm-hmm. to think about your daughter going on and doing those things so he he expressed some disappointment that I had decided to uh, go and do my nursing training but I remember having a conversation with him at the time saying that that nursing was something that I thought I could be really good at and do a really good job of and not to diminish the idea that that nursing was somehow lesser because I didn't plan to be an average nurse. I planned to really, you know, excel and and make changes and things. Uh, So I think subsequently he has been convinced that (laughs) nursing was not a bad choice for me as a career. Uh, But at the time it it was not entirely supported, Mm. I guess. It's yeah. interesting, isn't it, how people react to those changes and decisions and, yeah. Yeah, and probably from a position of not actually knowing a lot about what nursing mm-hmm. is like. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when I trained, it was already a degree-based program uh, and, yeah, I guess probably he didn't really see all of yeah. what nursing was and didn't imagine my new graduate position was at, in the CVICU, yeah. you know, working in a really highly medical, technical kind of area. Mm. Um and I don't know that he probably had that in his mind when he was imagining yeah, exactly. his daughter as a nurse. Exactly. So, yeah. I think, you know, a lot of that generation still have very fixed opinions and ideas of what nurses do. Yeah. Yeah. Yep, or don't do. Yep. Yeah. yeah. You're right. Um, but yeah, I did my training at MIT. Uh, it still took three years. I didn't have a lot of credits for my yeah. first degree, which is probably fair enough um, because it was sort of different areas. Uh, and then, yeah, my first job was at Green Lane with you. We were both working <laughs> in the right. same department at yeah. that stage, yeah. Um, and, yeah, I was a new graduate in an intensive care unit, and I was very lucky to be really well supported, mm. to have such a positive experience in my first few years of nursing. Mm. Um, you know, I was, a, I guess, a mature student. I'd already done a degree. I, you know, I had a big think in part-time jobs, seen a bit of the world on the ambulance, working yeah. as a volunteer. But uh, I also definitely credit my my formative nursing years, um, you know, the the teams that were on, uh, the people that I worked with, mentors um, Mm. along the way really, yeah, made a difference to me. Yeah, I think that's really interesting because stepping straight from, you know, (laughs) uh, um, as a new graduate into an intensive care environment, how was that? Yeah, um, it's... It was scary. Um, I had several advantages. Like I said, worked on the ambulance. Um, I was a little bit older, I guess, than someone who'd been straight out of school because I'd done my um, arts degree before I'd done my nursing training. 
Uh, I had the benefit of the department employed me as a healthcare assistant Mm. for several months before my uh, state exam final came through and I was a registered nurse and that actually allowed me to spend some time in the clinical environment really kind of so I really knew what I was in for, I guess. Mm. Um, and I, I, it's funny, just before we recorded this, we were both <laughs> making a bit of a joke about um, not necessarily rating our technical skills, but of course ICU is a very technical area. Mm. Uh, and part of the HCA's role, uh, certainly in those days, was you know things like taking apart the innards of the ventilator yeah. to clean them and then yeah. having to put it all back together and test it. Um, Right, so talking about technical skills and being an HCA, sorry we've just been interrupted and uh, (laughs) just getting back on track here. Realities of a busy department. Exactly. um, Yeah, so I I did work as an HCA and it did give me an opportunity to, I guess, uh, get familiar with some of the equipment that Mm. um, we were expected to use uh, once I was registered and also I think that was an opportunity to meet people, get to know people and just uh, things like all the noises and the bed space environment and so forth, uh, it just meant that that wasn't all brand new when I started Mm. which of course um, it helps, you know, it really does but I do remember uh, months of having sort of feeling like I was drawing up infusions in my sleep um, hearing, yeah, ventilator alarms in my sleep and mm. feeling like I was kind of living it 24 hours a day yeah. uh, and and learning how to put your clinical job away and, and go and live the rest of your life is, is, I guess, something that all of us have to develop skills at. But it was mm. quite hard in the first few months mm. working in ICU because... You know, I was exposed to such intense, unusual um, experiences, and my brain was busy kind of making sense of all of that. So, uh, yeah, but I was, like I say, extremely well supported. Mm -hmm. I had great sort of people to talk to and people to kind of share those experiences with, so it didn't feel lonely. Yeah, yeah. Um, and again, I guess I was learning about like how to deal with all of those things through peer support and, and finding mentors and mm. yeah, that, that helped. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And how long did you stay in the ICU for? Uh, so after a couple of years, I did I did my, I think I was one of the first through the ICU postgraduate certificate um, that the University of Auckland was running. So that was my second year mm-hmm. uh, out. And then I, I guess I sort of felt like there were perhaps it was time for me to go on and, and do seek out new challenges. Uh, but we were moving across to Auckland City Hospital to the mm. hospital to the new unit and building at the time. And uh, I agreed to stay for a little bit longer because that was a really challenging time. Mm. And also because it was it was interesting for me. And actually, yeah. it was really interesting yeah. to be involved in the logistics of moving a whole unit, trialing all the new equipment, mm. thinking about spaces. Um, it was pretty crazy for yeah, a while, wasn't yeah, it? That it was, was fascinating. It was an interesting yeah. time, and I guess that held my interest, um, you know, at a mm. point where I was starting to, I'd done my proficient portfolio, and I'd started to feel um, like, certainly not like I knew everything, but <laughs> like my, uh, I guess my learning had, had sort of flattened out a little bit mm, mm. after, you know, the initial, oh my goodness, there's so much to learn. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so then I left once we'd sort of settled into the into the new unit mm. uh, at Auckland and, um, 
Yeah, went and did emergency actually for for a little while and absolutely hated it. <laughs> oh yeah, I really didn't love it. So not a match made in heaven. No, it wasn't. It was really challenging for me because I had loved uh, CBICU and <clears throat> I guess I'd felt like I'd got there long, been there long enough to to feel competent with some mm. quite complex patients and demanding situations. Uh, and then I went to ED and I wasn't very good at it, and mm. it was a whole new skill set and. Yeah. Um, yeah, I found it really, really challenging, actually. Um, it's interesting because a lot of people might suspect that the skills are very transferable between the two areas, um, although we joke a lot about <laughs> the differences between emergency nurses and intensive care nurses um, and how, you know, one lot are very organised and the other lot maybe aren't. Um, but what sorts of challenges did you find... I think um, I'd set up expectations that I would have a pretty comprehensive understanding of what was going on with my patient, Mm -hmm. which, you know, you you are expected to have in in, um, ICU. And uh, I moved to an area where I might have quite a large number of patients turning over at quite a high speed. And uh, that meant that really it wasn't realistic to build Mm -hmm. the same rapport with the family or really be on top of... I mean, you know what it's like in ICU. You can, you know what your patients creatinine and potassium is all the time. Yeah. Um, whereas I was walking into rooms with with perhaps medications to give, and I had to say, uh, "Are you Mr. Jones?" Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and and go through everything right from scratch. So, I guess it was adjusting uh, your idea of of what things had to be prioritised. Mm-hmm. Um, different types of time management skills, definitely, yeah. and. Mm, yeah, I've got to be very careful here because you're right. Like ICU and ED <laughs> nurses, um, there's some some different personal attributes. I think for mm. each area, I actually felt more comfortable in ED working with the recess patients because then I did just have one or maybe two patients, yeah. um, and their instability wasn't inherently perhaps as concerning or frightening to me mm. because I was familiar with hemodynamic instability and 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 so forth. Um, and I got a chance to get to know them better yeah. uh, and use some of the learning like ventilation and, and dealing with ventilated patients mm. that I'd had from ICU. Uh, whereas working in acutes where I might have 10 or 15 patients to kind of look over, that was yeah, yeah quite really challenging. challenging. Eh? Yeah. It really was. Hugely yeah. different. Yeah. Uh, lots of great learning and mm. again a well supported environment there were plenty of senior staff yeah. um, we did we did get and we had good relationships with the doctors we were working with which mm. you know also characterizes ICU nursing yeah uh, so I did learn a lot uh, from being there but I didn't love it and I didn't stay for a very long time <laughs> And what did you do next? I went to Middlemore's uh, ICU and I worked in a general ICU for um, quite a few years actually and yeah, uh, a lot more of the skills that I'd learned uh, perhaps in the ICU were transferable to that environment, Mm. although it was different. Yeah, very Uh, different ICUs. Very different, yeah, yeah. Hugely different populations. Yeah, Yeah. different, um, I guess, different culture of uh, nursing care. We had some babies right through Mm. to uh, older patients. Uh, and like you say, a, a much more mixed uh, load of, of patients. So mm. uh, we had a, we were the National Burns Unit, which yeah. uh, was definitely a challenging area to be working in. Uh, but we also had, you know, little bronchiolitic babies mm. and, and some of the surgical patients that were uh, teenagers and, and young mm. people uh, right through to all the general adults. So, yeah. yeah. And you stayed there for how long? Uh, oh, I don't know, a few years. <laughs> a few years. Um, I got to a stage where I 
was sort of starting to be asked to perhaps coordinate shifts and um, take on a leadership role and I realised that I did want to challenge myself with some new things Uh, and I actually decided to uh, go to part-time clinical work at that stage and do my master's degree Mm -hmm. and I uh, went back to school, back to university (laughs) and I actually did a master of science in health psychology uh, which was really good for me, really Mm -hmm. interesting I think I was the first ever nurse to do that degree um, and that uh, that was interesting for me mm-hmm. because most of the class were people who'd gone from high school to do a bachelor's degree and straight into master's. Um, it was a very competitive limited entry program mm-hmm. to uh, help people to become registered health psychologists. Mm-hmm. So majority of the students imagine themselves becoming clinicians as health psychologists. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, I used to put my hand up in class and say, but hospitals aren't really like that. And, but that's not very practical. And that's not like, yeah, patients really experience. And I was quite an annoying student probably <laughs> as a, as a um, mature student in that class. But I did learn an awful lot. Yeah. It was absolutely, yeah, yeah, brilliant learning. Uh, and, and I'm sure people learnt from you too by questioning, you know, and raising those points so. and yeah. <laughs> having that input. I hope so. I'm yeah. certainly still um, very friendly with, with several of the people That's in that good. cohort. Uh, but yes, I, I yeah brought a dose of reality to mm. a class that sometimes got a little bit theoretical um, mm. or, yeah, just although the value of research was obviously really high uh, and I learned so much about research, um, I also like to just have a pragmatic perspective sometimes. And, mm. and um, yeah. And like oh, you're saying, I mean, some I of it is age and stage, isn't it? Being a little bit older Absolutely. in the class, but yeah. having all that clinical experience uh, to drag into situations like that, I mean, you can't underestimate it, can you? No, 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 <laughs> absolutely. I um, I told some good work stories, probably, probably fair to say. Yeah, yeah. I know, you must have a few now. Yeah, yeah definitely. <laughs> so uh, when did you move into the teaching side of things? Actually, uh, right from the stage that I was at CVICU, I'd, I'd already been doing teaching for St John, mm-hmm. and um, although a lot of the work that I did with St John was just part-time, some of it was volunteer, some of it was paid, um, I would credit them with, with teaching me a lot about education, mm-hmm. uh, and some of the people that I met there are really great educators, um, and they taught me a lot about how to teach clinicians, um, you know, teaching volunteers first aid, teaching members of the public first aid from quite a young age, Mm -hmm. uh, which was quite intimidating, um, but also taught me a lot about, yeah, about the education process and about how to facilitate learning. Yeah. Uh, And they were quite ahead of, I guess, ahead of things Mm -hmm. in terms of using simulation very Mm -hmm. early on Mm -hmm. um, and understanding that adult learners were different and that they they needed lots of engagement and application and clinicians love to apply things. So I think I actually learned a lot about teaching then uh, and then I became a core resuscitation instructor and uh, ended up leading the um, resuscitation Mm -hmm. training at uh, Green Lane, uh, Mm -hmm. the CBICU, which was a great opportunity for me, again, being quite new to nursing, (laughs) quite young. Um, But yeah, really, really good experience. Experiences. So I've, I've really been teaching since I was yeah. a teenager, like, uh, yeah, having little bits of teaching. And of course, as nurses, we do a lot of education yeah. and a lot of gauging where the the family members or the patient might be and, mm. and trying to work out how to pitch education. It's such a cool part them. of our job, oh, isn't yeah, it, as a nurse? And yeah. you're doing it constantly yeah. without realising. You do, yeah. yeah. And you get to, yeah, be quite experienced at delivering mm. quite challenging information in context that is, yeah, 
distressed people, people with perhaps limited mm-hmm. health knowledge and so forth. So, uh, yeah, I've really been teaching my whole career, I guess. Yeah. So just for people who are listening who aren't from New Zealand, <laughs> do you want to explain a little bit um, about what St John is and how it sort of works in New Zealand? Because this will also feed into when we go on to talk about, um, you know, your PhD studies as yeah. well. Yeah, so... Uh, St John in New Zealand uh, is a charitable uh, trust, but they or charitable organisation, but they uh, also provide ambulance services uh, for most of New Zealand, about ninety percent of New Zealand. Uh, my involvement initially was as a first aider uh, when I was doing my Bachelor of Arts, and they gave me training, very good training, uh, and I would go along to rugby matches, <laughs> uh, which there are a lot of in New Zealand. Yeah, <laughs> and. Uh, then more so I was going along to a lot there were a lot of raves and there was uh, a lot of uh, party culture and use of party drugs uh, we're talking about the turn of the century here but there were yeah a lot a lot of experimentation with drug use mm. and things like that and so uh, I guess as a as a young volunteer um, I would be working with other volunteers and, and providing uh, first aid for people at events like that not mm. being a huge rugby fan sorry <laughs> um, but I did go to a lot of those kind of events and learned a huge amount um, mm. you know mm. about dealing with crisis and and uh, everything from sprained ankles through to, to drug overdoses mm. and, and serious medical uh, complications so uh, they gave me very very good training uh, you know obviously it was a lot of volunteer service as well but mm. I feel like I got a lot back from it yeah. um, I met amazing mentors including the um, charge nurse who eventually employed me as a new mm-hmm. graduate um, <laughs> Nick, shout out to Nick Jenny uh, and yeah also other people who I guess have continued to be mentors and, and close friends mm-hmm. uh, in my life who may still work as paramedics or are now in management roles in St John. Mm. Yeah, so. And I guess a natural fit going on later to work in ICU and the emergency department. And, yeah, yeah <laughs> I guess it gave me a bit of a, um, a taste of acute care yeah. um, and maybe even the courage to, to I guess... Um, deal with those kind of things you know mm. when I first started on the ambulance things like changing the gas cylinder um, regulators over you know it was kind of terrifying yeah. uh, but I learned that with practice I could be quite safe and competent at those mm. things and those life lessons also increased my confidence with some of the intimidating aspects of, mm. of critical care I guess mm. um, I don't feel like I'm a natural at those things but I did learn that you know if you practice and you yeah. you know you're well taught and, and you give yourself time then you'll learn how to do it. Mm. So, yeah. Now, do you think you, you know, there's a little bit of an aside, but do you think you ever lose the fear of changing a regulator? Or a, a I still am not a huge fan of that. No, no, I've got to say, actually, if someone else wants to um, deal with compressed gases, that's fine with Absolutely me. Absolutely fine. That's face. why we have nurse technicians, I think, to do the, the hard jobs like yeah. that. No, no. It's one of those things you always think, is it going to explode on me now? Or there is a chance, not? isn't there? So, yeah, yeah. 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 No, um, we do deal with some, um, yeah, challenging kind of things. I've never <laughs> loved that sort of thing. No. But, uh, yeah, just knowing that you're safe and that you can, I guess, overcome that is mm-hmm. really good life learning that, that working on the ambulance gave me. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. hugely important. Yeah. 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 So now you're teaching in the undergraduate program here. Um, what sorts of courses are you involved in here? Uh, I think perhaps because my background's been quite general um, I have been quite happy to uh, 
well, dog's body is not a very yeah. nice expression, but I am quite happy to uh, help out with a lot of different aspects. I mm. teach from the first uh, year papers right through to the pre-registration uh, nearly graduated nurses. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I provide clinical supervision to nurses who are in uh, quite a variety of environments, which I found really mm-hmm. uh, great for my own practice and for networking within the hospital, um, just getting insights into a lot of different surgical and medical and rehab areas mm-hmm. uh, and community uh, kind of acute care places. Mm-hmm. Um, be very easy to become very isolated if you were just working in in the teaching side of it, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. 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 So I, I guess I try to continue to create opportunities to, I guess, learn and and you know see new things and mm. and it just helps me to uh, keep myself updated with the clinical environment and the reality of these different areas as they the specialty areas change and and become increasingly mm. specialised. Mm. Um, so yeah, I really enjoy clinical supervision of students. Um, I do a little bit of postgraduate kind of teaching here and there. Mm-hmm. Um, I've since I've been doing research with paramedics, I uh, have a couple of regular sessions with paramedics students um, where I'm teaching, and also with I still teach a little bit with health psychology as well. Oh, great. Uh, and I do all the a lot of the ACLS teaching, which is interdisciplinary again with the medical students and the mm. nurses working together uh, in resuscitation training, which I really enjoy. Mm. Uh, so yeah, I really love being able to teach across different disciplines. I feel like yeah. that's um, really important because we're all going to be working with different disciplines, mm. and it helps to break down those silos. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. the skills are again, you know, we sort of mentioned the word transferable earlier on, but they are, aren't they, yeah. across all the disciplines? Yeah. It's you know, it doesn't matter what your background is, what what your role is, mm-hmm. um, you still do the same thing. Mm. And I think quite often the students find it refreshing to have someone come in from a perhaps a different perspective because we have a tendency to present information in a different way that's kind of discipline can be more discipline specific and Mm. so um, yeah quite often I have comments from other disciplines that that it's a bit of a fresh take or a bit of a different approach to it. Yeah Mm. because often there's some factors that you've come across or that you think of that are completely outside of somebody else's world aren't they? Mm. (laughs) Absolutely yeah yeah definitely they just don't necessarily notice or or attend to them Mm. so yeah. So you've mentioned the word resuscitation a few times now. <laughs> uh, yeah. Passion of yours? Um, yeah, I think I, it just kind of happened to me, really. I think that because I was involved with the ambulance and I was teaching resuscitation, uh, it's just been a common thread through uh, all of my career. Uh, and I and I guess I have been involved in uh, resuscitation in the in the pre-hospital setting, mm. uh, you know, in the back of ambulances and people's homes uh, in public places, and then again in the emergency department we were resuscitating patients, and then in the critical care environment, and uh, that perhaps gave me some unique kind of insights seeing all through those stages of, of resuscitation mm. for someone who has perhaps cardiac arrested uh, in the in the community. And, uh, yeah, made it a very real and, I guess, pertinent kind of area, I thought, perhaps for research. Mm. Yeah. So tell us about your PhD <laughs> and what it's sort of looking at and, you know, the research question, I guess, that's evolved in that. So uh, I guess there were probably times when I was working in the emergency and in the critical care environment where 
I perhaps wondered uh, about the decision making around mm. resuscitation. You know that that for the paramedics, the ambulance personnel on scene, um, they often have partial information. Sometimes they don't even know the patient's name. Yeah. Um, or they have limited, you know, or, or conflicting information. How long have they collapsed for? You know, mm. medical history, all those sort of things. Uh, and I sort of wondered about the the making of those decisions mm. and and uh, what how they made those decisions, I guess. Um, And because I had worked on an ambulance for a couple of years and I have all these sort of social network of people that are working in that kind of pre-hospital space, I was aware that it was quite a complicated Mm. area. Mm. And I thought that would be really interesting for a nurse with a background in psychology uh, who had a few insights into that pre-hospital space. And sure enough, when I went to look at the literature, there really wasn't a lot uh, that had been done from the perspective of those ambulance personnel. Mm. Mm. Uh, There there was a lot of stuff around survival and predicting survival and um, very biomedical Mm. survival statistics, which is great. And of course, we need to know how to do really effective resuscitation and what works. But... The reality is uh, probably as as many as ninety five percent of the patients that an ambulance uh, officer attends who are, who are in cardiac arrest are not going to be alive thirty days later, and so uh, sometimes the the decision will have to be to either terminate resuscitation on scene, or perhaps even decide not to start uh, CPR mm. if it's apparent that the the patient's irreversibly died, and so I wanted to know how do they make those decisions. Uh, and I, yeah, I then wanted to look at perhaps how we could be better supporting and preparing uh, ambulance personnel for enacting those decisions mm. um, and the, then the things that followed. Yeah. yeah. So how have you gone about exploring this? <laughs> well, I think that um, as an emergency nurse, now that I do work in emergency an awful lot, uh, we spend a lot of time gathering data and kind of, putting data together and we're used to using a mixture of objective numbers and and vital Mm. signs and also subjective patient history and Mm. our general end of the bed feeling. Yeah so uh, it appealed to me to use mixed methods because I wanted to just kind of generate data that best answered the questions that I Mm. had along the way. Uh, I'd also use mixed methods in my master's uh, research so it felt accessible. Yep. and so I started out with a qualitative study uh, interviewing experienced uh, paramedics and ambulance personnel about what it was like to make these decisions to start or stop resuscitation. And that was a really fruitful study. I had amazing, amazing participants who shared some of them, you know, decades and decades mm-hmm. of, of experiences, um, very... I guess very open with me and sometimes becoming emotional and sharing details that were uh, really quite profound sometimes Mm. Uh, but also drawing together some common themes about the the challenges Mm. that are associated with that and and how the experienced ones go about making decisions versus the perhaps uh, contrasts with a a less experienced ambulance Mm. officer and some of the dilemmas that they faced. So you had quite a range of participants. Yeah, yeah. I intentionally um, 
I had to recruit harder for the less experienced people. The really experienced ones were really quick to come and talk to me about it. Yeah. Uh, but those that had been perhaps practicing for less time, uh, and I specifically went into rural areas mm. and tried to get their perspectives because they're with patients for a lot longer and Quite they face some too. unique and they definitely do face some unique challenges. Yeah. Uh, they're more likely to turn up and actually know the patient mm. or know the family or know the primary teachers, aunties, mm. whatever, you know, there's mm. connections. Uh, so that can be, and they're also a lot further away from senior support. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I did see some differences between the the junior and the more experienced uh, staff, but that also suggested that perhaps there were some opportunities for improving their preparation and support. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's kind of where I went with the next, next phases, <laughs> yeah, of my research. So. Um, do you want me to tell you about oh, that yes. too? Okay, so <laughs> tell us so, about that one um, Then I met with uh, I, I did some focus groups with people again. St John being the, the uh, mm. predominant provider for New Zealand, I did invite the other uh, ambulance service to be involved, but uh, they weren't able to take part at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I went all over New Zealand speaking to people who were in clinical education roles for mm-hmm. St John, uh, and also people who were in peer support roles because St John has quite a a well-established peer support network for people to just have a chat about what they've seen and done and so I wanted to ask them you know what do people come to you with what do they find challenging what helps because uh, they're a volunteer network but they certainly have that expertise of of providing that that peer support Mm. Uh, and yeah that brought up some really interesting themes Uh, these days in New Zealand paramedics are doing a three-year degree program very similar to nurses and physios and and many Mm. other health professionals Uh, there are more and more of them coming out of school straight into those programs Uh, so I guess our ambulance personnel are are, um, more qualified uh, younger Younger. and also uh, Mm. more feminized now we're getting more and more Mm -hmm. women uh, graduating with paramedic degrees and uh, the perhaps those more senior staff in education and peer support roles, uh, quite a lot of them had gone through a, a more of a uh, apprenticeship style model. Mm. Maybe they'd come to paramedicine a bit later in life. They'd spent perhaps a bit longer out on the road before they were given increased responsibility mm. and leadership roles. And uh, so the way that people are learning about these things has changed. Mm. And does it lead to tension within the roles, perhaps as well? Uh, yes, I think yeah. it's probably um, it's it's probably fair to say that it's it's a different model of um, qualification, and uh, it has uh, caused some challenges mm. along the way. Mm. Um, yeah, and that that was acknowledged that that especially that that people really value their life experience Mm, mm. and because when you terminate a resuscitation you you transfer transform that that scene of hope and effort and resuscitation and we're going to save them to the scene of a death Mm. and to manage that scene of a death um, a lot of the people that I spoke to described quite a a unique skill set that perhaps hadn't been a focus of Mm. uh, the knowledge and skills that were taught in a degree program Mm. And that maybe they were coming to those situations with life experience, personal mm-hmm. experience of resolved grief, um, experience with exposure to death and dying, mm-hmm. and and that had strengthened their confidence, uh, and that perhaps they didn't expect someone who was quite young and maybe hadn't seen a lot of death, uh, hadn't dealt with their own kind of experiences of death and dying and grief, 
that that was quite a big ask mm. for them to be able mm. to manage that that kind of scene. Well, it's a hugely complex time, isn't it? And you know, I guess um, there's so many similarities between the intensive care setting and you know ambulance personnel, but you know, particularly around not um, you know, I guess the difference is not knowing what you're turning up to, <laughs> what you're walking into, mm. who's there, the environment, the type of cardiac arrest perhaps. Absolutely. Um, you yeah. know, you just have no idea, do you? No. And they, and they really, I mean, they can be walking into scenes that are really um, dynamic. So mm. they're changing all the time. You know, you might walk into a scene and there's just a couple of family members there and they might be on the phone and more family yeah. arrive. And, you know, if, it, if it's a situation of... of where it's unclear what the cause of death is, um, that's that's always very challenging mm. and, and can be quite frustrating for the people mm. involved. Uh, in, in critical care, we tended to have pretty good knowledge, not always, but but we usually knew what was going on yeah. with our patients. Uh, but to not not be sure um, can be quite mm. uh, challenging for everyone. And working in a foreign environment too. That that's right. Didn't. It can be dark. It can be cramped. Um, yeah. You know, there can be insufficient numbers of people or there can be a huge number of people and that, those two things can both be challenging. Mm. Um, yeah, just having these noise, um, distress, people can get quite uh, agitated, restless, perhaps mm. even threatening. Uh, families can be wailing and crying, wanting to touch the person. Uh, it can be a really, really quite an affronting and, mm. and challenging situation. And of course, paramedics are experts at this. They, they deal with uncertainty with, with scenes that they have to manage mm. that are dynamic all of the time. Yeah. They get to be very, very good at it. But uh, probably the scene of an unexpected or a sudden death can be one of the most demanding mm. situations that they, they might face. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, perhaps for someone who's really inexperienced, just getting stuck into doing CPR, and doing the the life-saving treatment that they've rehearsed, they've simulated, and they're actually very, very good at, Mm -hmm. um, is the sort of safest default action and quite a reasonable thing for them to just do to to kind of bring order to a chaotic scene Mm. and to feel that they are doing what's expected of them Mm. um which yeah yeah is quite a big factor so and so did your interviews also explore how they care for themselves afterwards and you know what happens when you finished your resuscitation like you say and you walk away. Yeah, so um, I didn't explicitly um, search for information of that in my first phase, but in the second phase I certainly did. I asked, you know, what helps, what sort of things do people look for afterwards? Uh, and really the the things that came out of that were about uh, like a personalised approach. Uh, because, and I, you know, I'm sure as a, as a fellow clinician, we do deal with death and dying. Mm. And uh, there, is, there are occasions where you manage uh, dealing with a patient death and you go home and you forget all about it and you're okay. Mm. You know, it's not distressing. It doesn't necessarily have a big impact on you. Mm. Uh, and there are occasions where, you know, you're involved in a difficult situation and it really just keeps going on yeah. like a loop in your mind and you feel upset and you take it home and, you know, you, you can be quite vulnerable for a period mm. afterwards. And so it's quite important not to approach these things universally, like mm. everyone's going to need the same intervention. Uh, and for experienced stuff, I think there was quite a lot of resistance to the idea that anything should be compulsory. You know, debriefing should not be yeah. compulsory. Um, some of them talked about things like rituals, like cleaning out the ambulance afterwards. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, and I certainly remember doing that mm. after some difficult jobs that just being in the presence of your offsider that you're working with, um, restocking the ambulance and going, that was pretty hard, wasn't it? Mm. Yep, want to talk about it. Maybe, maybe not. Mm. Uh, had a lot of value. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the process of cleaning out the um, back of the ambulance uh, had some, for some people, cultural and spiritual value, particularly mm. if you'd had to transfer someone that had died in the back of the ambulance, yeah. but also seemed to have an emotional um, kind of disconnecting, moving on to the next patient thing, mm. which I've also seen in ED, where we tend to clean down the, the area. Um, we have holy water to bless the space. Uh, and that ritual means different things to different mm. people, but does seem to allow people to reset uh, and to to move on to, to care for the next person, mm. which um, is also a feature of, of paramedic work, that yeah. they could be called out to the next job any time. Exactly. It's one of those unusual aspects, isn't it, as a healthcare professional, that, you know, you're sort of tidying up at somebody's death and mm. finishing off um, somebody's you know the end of their life whether it's with family present or not um, but then you're constantly thinking in the intensive care or emergency environment you know so what's happening next the next where's the next coming one? Yeah, yeah absolutely yeah. yeah it's a very unusual part of our job mm. um, and for some people uh, they want to just get on with the next job that is what genuinely what they want mm. to do uh, but sometimes there'll be a job where they actually do need a bit of downtime mm. uh, and managers uh, talked about I guess uh, being aware of perhaps their own staff's needs maybe staff members that are having their own personal um, bereavement or mm. um, perhaps it's a first a first child death that they've gone to yeah. a first sudden death that they've gone to um, trying to kind of be aware where there, there might be a need for a little bit of a break mm. and uh, ambulance staff have lots of rituals around that sometimes it's a catch-up in the ambulance bay at emergency department mm. again sort of around resetting and, and cleaning the ambulance mm. but also about oh I heard you went to this really challenging job how are you checking in want a cup of coffee yeah you know do we need to shut the back of the doors and have a cry for a minute like yeah um and that my concern with that is that a lot of it was really, really valuable, but sort of invisible. Mm. It's quite informal. Mm. Uh, and managers were doing things and, and colleagues were doing things to advocate for that space to decompress. Yeah. Um, but it could easily be missed. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and we're getting busier and busier, and that's true for the ambulances too. So a day where it's really needed, um, they might be rushed off to the next job. Yeah. Uh, so that's, I guess, uh, raising awareness about how important that is. Mm. Yeah. And are there any sort of formal peer support mechanisms that come into play um, that, you know, could sort of be paralleled in, in the hospital environment? Yeah, so I, I think um, the peer support model that St John have used has been um, implemented in at least one emergency department that I'm uh, aware of. Mm-hmm. Uh it's it's a little bit um, challenging that, that the same issue of time, that people find it difficult to create space uh, that a peer support person would be do, using their own time to do that. Yeah. And that at the end of a long, you know, a lot of our staff are still doing 12-hour shifts, which is true for the paramedics, um, people are so exhausted that actually they're, they're not able to give that time at that stage Mm. Um, but yeah certainly the availability of peer support is I think really important uh, and probably underserved for nurses Mm. I think that uh, we have to create our own opportunities for that and um, and that for new staff they're the least 
well socially connected and mm. possibly the most in need of in that need. peer support yeah. Yeah. and that's definitely a, a vulnerability to to kind of try and address with mm. formal processes uh, and for the peer people providing peer support whether it be in a structured way like St John have or whether it just be in a man you look upset mm. you know do you want to have a talk afterwards um, they need to know that they've got formal people to refer them to. Yeah. And St John, like many uh, healthcare organisations, have uh, EAP available mm. if, if they know that there, there's some more talking that needs to be done and some mm. more uh, intervention. And they also have clinical backup. So if the issue is, I feel really unsure if I did everything I could have, yeah. which is a, you know quite a genuine, a genuine issue. Yeah. You know, People are just yeah. saying, could I have done more? Should I have done differently? What would I do if I faced this again? Um, and sometimes they can just talk that through informally, but sometimes they benefit from, a, a, I guess, a clinical education figure and authority saying, you did really well, yeah. <laughs> which is often what they're saying. Exactly. Or, um, you know, do you think you might do this differently next time mm. and how? So yeah. those opportunities for reflection, they're so important. Yeah. They really are. And I think that applies across all of our professions. Um, but as you pointed out, that, that demand for the next patient that's mm. waiting for your care um, that's always there in the back mm. of our minds or in the forefront of our minds. Yeah. What are some simple things we can all do, I guess, you know, in terms of providing support to our peers, um, you know, pretty much on a day-to-day basis, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. No matter where you work, what, what sorts of things could we be employing, do you think? I think as nurses uh, and many health professionals, again, I think we are quite sensitive to each other. And I think that um, it is okay for people to say, you look a bit upset. Mm. Um, the only time I've ever broken down into tears in the emergency department was when a colleague said that because she knew I wasn't. Yeah. You know, yeah. she she could tell that that I, I was experiencing some emotional distress as a, a result of what had happened. And um, I think being able to just kind of tune in to your colleagues and, and be aware and just ask lots mm. of are you okay mm. do you want a minute? Uh, we do that a lot. We do that quite well I think mm. in emergency. Um and in ICU, you know, I've I've given people a, a bit of a time out in the toilet. It sounds yeah. terrible. Or to go and make a cup of tea. Yeah. Or um, just to stand outside the building and, and feel the sunshine on your face mm. and breathe fresh air. Whatever it is that you need personally. Mm. But just recognising our humanity and that, that we, we all kind of have a limit. It's going to be different different people different situations sometimes yeah. it's cumulative you've just had you know several yeah. really challenging days and someone patients. looks at you the wrong way yeah exactly <laughs> the straw that breaks the camel's Correct. back um i think the idea that that there are particular traumatizing um mm. encounters is is being disproven um but we do know that there are certain things that that yeah. you know that that young people can be more upsetting that suddenness um mm. can be more upsetting and that uncertainty can be characterised as, as you know, a challenge for health professionals. We like to feel like we've not been help, helpless mm. or hopeless. We've yeah. been, we've done stuff, yeah, and we've done the right stuff. Um, so yeah, just being aware of that, I think. Yeah, and I like what you say about, um, you know, it doesn't often have to be this massive grand gesture. It's often just that, are you okay, or yeah. just walk away, I'll look after your patient yep. for five minutes oh, yes. while you go yep. and, you know, gather your thoughts, have a cup of tea, yeah. um, take some time out. And I think there's been some um, outstanding initiatives overseas, you know, in terms of, I know one place that calls it a code lavender, oh, yeah. you know, but it is recognising that your colleague needs to step out of the bed space. Yeah. And so somebody, whether it's a runner or, a, you know, another nurse who's available, being able to step in and say, 
right, I think you need to leave mm-hmm. and I'll look after your patient so that you can take some time out. Um, so possibly a little bit of work to be done. <laughs> yeah, I think maybe formally acknowledging it like that would help to reduce shame because mm-hmm. that is definitely uh, still an issue uh, for nurses but also uh, paramedics that, mm. that there's kind of an expectation that you just tough it out and get on with it yeah. um, and and I still hear my colleagues apologising when they're upset by, by things that we see um, but I've always said those emotions are also what make you a great clinician, mm. that emotional connection um, you know, it helps you to really enjoy when you do well. It helps you to really notice when your patients need you, uh, but it also creates vulnerability. Mm. Uh, and so you shouldn't apologise. No, for that. exactly. No, none of us want to be nursed or cared for by someone who's completely distanced themselves yeah. uh, in a way that makes them robotic and and not compassionate. Mm. So, mm. yeah, finding that balance is really important. Yeah, mm. exactly. And then mm. continuing it. Yes. Um, I guess you know often. Perhaps we have more access to resources when we're at work, mm. um, but then we go home. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> what sorts of things either do you do or have you um, seen other people do in order to sort of make that transition from a very stressful day, very stressful experience perhaps, or ongoing stress at work, back into home life? Yeah. <laughs> because, you know, you don't want to be taking work home. No. You don't want to be suffering at home either. No, yeah, it's. I think it's really important to learn what works for you. Um, I have quite a, a, I guess, a ritual when I leave work. Um, I do a heck of a thorough hand wash that I know is about more than just all of the, um, all of the people that I've had contact with that shift. Um, I am fortunate enough to live near the hospital, and so actually walking home after my shift gives me time to mm-hmm. notice all of the other things that are happening in the world and kind of. Uh, forget a bit about the things that I've been thinking about or give myself a chance Mm. to reflect on it and knowing that once I get home, that's it. Yeah. I do have key people who... um, I will ring or Skype and say, actually, there's a thing I can't stop thinking about. Mm. I don't have to do that very often these days, but uh, they still do that for me as well. You know, they'll still ring me when they have challenging situations. And I think those key people are really important in your life. Mm. Uh, Sorry to interrupt. Are they people who would have knowledge of the situation or just people that you trust on a different level yeah, they have a medical no. background or Look, my mum my mum's always been a really good listener and she yeah. has absolutely no clinical experience yeah. at all uh, but I have to say that um, some of the people I met early in my career at St mm-hmm. John um, you know one of my closest friends is now an intensivist uh, and he works in another country but you know when we share experiences with each other sometimes it requires a lot less explaining than mm. it might to a non-clinician yeah. there are you, you know there are a lot of those you know moments Yep. where you don't have to say a lot you just kind of understand yeah. Um, and yeah sometimes our debriefing is quite clinically focused I suppose mm. we might be really interested in the clinical aspect so it is nice to talk to someone who gets that yeah um, yeah but I also, I've learned that um, for me that I'm not very good at doing nothing. And so um, for me to be genuinely mindful and, and really disconnect from all my thoughts, um, I've taken up photography. Mm. I was going to bring yeah, this up actually because yeah. I have seen some photos. Amazing. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. So uh, 
I don't think I'm naturally an artistic person. I don't I don't know that it's ever come naturally to me, but I've always had an interest in uh, in nature and I love hiking. Mm. Uh, I've always been really interested in birds mm. uh, and uh, natural subjects and landscapes and things. And so, yeah, because I'm so busy thinking about the composition and thinking about the camera and thinking about what I'm looking at, and really experiencing the colours and, and all of that kind of stuff, mm. uh, that helps me to not think yeah. about clinical Other issues stuff. or, or mm. my PhD or anything else. Um, and that's that's really helpful for me. But everyone has mm. different, you know, I know there's a lot of my colleagues who are um, really avid exercisers. They love to, yeah, I love your face. Mm. It's a shame you can't get that on avid podcast. Exercises. <laughs> but we do know a lot of very successful people who um, deal with their stress by by mm. uh, cycling massive distances and doing Ironman and yeah. running. And um, I don't know that my body was ever designed with that in mind. Uh, but whatever works for you to allow you to just get outside of your own head is, is really yeah. important, eh? Yeah, oh, totally. And, and you know, from what I've seen of your work too, being able to travel and see new places yes. and enjoy them with your husband and just yeah. take these amazing photos. Thank so, you. Yeah, yeah. no, yeah. I've really, um, photography has been a fantastic um, a hobby to take up. And, yeah, now my husband's also um, doing it as well. And, <laughs> yeah, we're really, I mean, we, we know it's also important to put the camera down and just be present in yeah. the moment. Um, but I think the camera, in a funny way, has allowed me to be more present mm. in the moment because I'm thinking, about capturing it mm. uh, and it's my kind of smell the roses yeah. thing that I do except I'm photographing the roses but yeah, yeah it's been really really great for my well-being so. yeah it's interesting you say about you know it's important to put down the camera as well but you know I guess what you're doing by looking at it through the lens is like lens mm. uh, digital lens mm. um, is you're still very focused aren't mm. you you know yeah. and you're really picking out the colors the you mm. know the scene whatever mm. um, so you're just very engaged in it in a very mm. different way yeah. yeah yeah no it's been it's been a brilliant hobby and um, also gets me outdoors gets me walking you know yeah. um, part of the reason I love birds so much is where there are there's a lot of bird life there often aren't many people <laughs> <laughs> so actually it's yeah getting away and mm. and from noise and and crowds and things like that yeah. it's been really um, disengaging I help, life, helps me a yeah. lot yeah. yeah 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 so maybe post PhD there'll be a bit more opportunity mm, maybe or maybe <laughs> less who knows yeah yeah mm. so with the PhD how are you tracking now and when are you hoping to submit? So I've been doing it uh, part-time and my plan right from the start was to do it uh, over six years because I figured full-timers would take three years mm. and I was doing it half-time, so double that. Yeah. Uh, and I think I'm on track for that, so that'll have me submitting early next year. Um, I've had amazing supervision and I cannot understate how important that is. Mm. Um, I think it's worth taking time finding the right supervisors mm. uh, and and I've been very fortunate to have fantastic mm. supervision um, but I've also really loved my, my topic you know my research area uh, I've really enjoyed engaging with participants and, and hearing them say that this is really important mm. uh, and I guess along the way I've had opportunities to present my results and publish my results yeah. um, and again can't recommend that highly enough yeah. because it's like little bits of 
um, enthusiastic encouragement along a very long journey mm-hmm. and getting feedback from the from the paramedics because I don't work on the ambulance now. I want to know that I'm not um, so much in my own head that I've mm-hmm. lost touch with that reality. So going back to those people mm-hmm. who this directly affects often um, and hearing them say this is important to us and this is great research and we really you know kind of get your mm. resonates with us your results um that's really helped yeah. me to maintain my impetus along the way i was yeah. going to ask you about that actually because <clears throat> um undertaking qualitative research and we you know we talk about providing copies of the transcripts back and things like that but how do participants feel when they see the results and see you know maybe comments out of their interviews or the overall sort of themes that have come out what if they said yeah, no, so I've had some fabulous feedback from people who've been involved along the way. Um, it did differ with individuals, mm-hmm. so um, some of them wanted to see their transcripts, gave me feedback, um, were really, like, when they might see me in the emergency department or they'd email me and say, you know, any updates, like, yeah. we want to know about the results. No pressure. Um, <laughs> but it's nice. I mean, they, they, yeah. they came from a, we think this is important, um, you know, that's part of what motivated them to be involved. Um, I think nurses are starting to feel like they're getting uh, requests for involvement in, in research mm. more often, perhaps. But paramedicine is quite a new discipline. Mm. And so uh, telling paramedics and ambulance personnel that their voice is important and their experience is important um, is perhaps a newer thing for them. And so, yeah, I got some really sort of people saying, if you want to come back, Um, for some more you know if I can be involved in the next phase Uh, people emailing me after their interviews and sending me things that they thought might be helpful Mm. Um, requests to speak at different places and and um, to different audiences Mm. and yeah that's certainly really helped with my motivation and and getting that feedback from people when you present to audiences and they put their hand up and ask really good questions and yeah it's just been really fantastic it's amazing isn't it because you know six years is a long time it is it really (laughs) is to keep the motivation levels up um but we were talking earlier on about you know how you've really enjoyed it yeah and you know i think if you can investigate an area that you're passionate about that you can see the value in that you know is hopefully going to make some difference Mm, (laughs) so what will you do with these results you know out of your combined studies where can you see that kind of heading that's an important question so um the third phase of my uh research i actually did uh, just a pilot survey with paramedic students in new zealand about Mm. their confidence their concerns and their learning experiences and exposure in this area of um resuscitation decision making and and uh for want of a better expression, managing the scene of a patient death. Mm. So, you know, what do they do once Mm. that resuscitation effort has ceased? Uh, There are quite a lot of skills after that. Mm. And, uh, yeah, really the the emphasis there has been on uh, non-technical skills. And I think it would be fair to say that paramedics have have quite a repertoire of of technical skills that Mm. have uh, characterised in many respects their progression through different levels. Uh, You know, when you ask an intensive care paramedic what they can do, they'll tell you about which holes they can, you know, invasive (laughs) lines they can put in and drugs they can give. But actually they also possess non-technical skills around crew resource management and talking to people who are in crisis Mm. and breaking bad news that they used to learn through sheer duration 
you know they were in the ambulance for long enough they had it socially modeled from senior staff Mm. and they learned how to do it well Uh, and to expect a new new graduate to be able to deal with something that complex dynamic different for every situation uh, is quite tricky Mm. so uh, for me it's around making sure the supports are there so that you don't expect a new graduate to be brilliant at that (laughs) but perhaps also putting a little bit more of those non-technical skills into their curriculum and Mm. valuing things like breaking bad news Um, maybe when they're simulating some of these scenes Mm Typically, they would simulate, maybe they might simulate a death, but that that simulation would generally finish the moment the patient has died, Mm. uh, perhaps extending it beyond that to to actually, yeah, Yeah. like how how are you going to deal with where the body is, Um, you know, who's going to talk to who, Mm. uh, what kind of reactions might you expect from family, Mm. Uh, because that was quite a source of anxiety for paramedic Mm. students. They hadn't necessarily seen acute grief reactions, uh, and you and I know that they are really quite varied, and they can be quite distressing to witness mm. um, and memorable. Yeah, um, yeah, I think we all have memories of wailing and and think, yep, yeah, and um, kind of being able to just be aware of that mm. um, might help them to be a little bit more yeah. prepared. Yeah, feel a bit more confident about managing that. But yeah, yeah having the support in place when it does happen, recognizing that they're going to either need to call a senior in. Mm. which in an urban area is quite a realistic thing to do to yeah. wait till someone more senior came in uh, but perhaps in more isolated areas to be mm. able to ring someone and yeah. say oh, I think we're going to have to stop CPR at this stage I don't think it's going to work mm. uh, rather than wait for an hour for a senior staff member to, to arrive yeah, yeah. yeah yeah so yeah I'm hoping that uh, I've certainly had a chance to um, present my results to some important people and the medical director said he wants a copy of my thesis um, <laughs> and yes I've had some uh, more of my research published now yeah. out there so um, yeah just looking to what kind of things we could be doing in the future mm. to try and help prepare people for those situations. Oh, yeah. that's fantastic. And so, I mean, like you say, you've had how many articles published now out of your thesis? Six. Six. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, so there's plenty of resource out there for people who are keen to follow up too on your studies. And, um, you know, fascinating reading. And I think just the the similarities between the nursing background um, and the ambulance personnel background is just, you know, I guess for you being able to harness all your areas... Um, into your research is just tremendous Mm. and hopefully is going to um, provide a lot of insight which it has done already um, but then to be able to go on and develop learning programs or support or guidelines you know whatever it might look like um, to help ambulance personnel is amazing so well done you thank you very much Rachel (laughs) and we'll all have a copy of your thesis you know we'll look forward to that okay yeah I can't (laughs) wait to have it all bound together that's going to be really exciting yeah yeah yeah, yeah, lots absolutely. of celebrations. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. Very good. Thank well, you. Thank you very much Lee. for having me. Yeah. Excellent talk. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed that. I've known Natalie since her new graduate days, and this was such an easy, entertaining, and fascinating conversation to have. I really enjoyed it. Natalie is so passionate about her research, and in particular about the effect that resuscitation, death, and dying have on us all. And some simple ideas that she presented there doesn't take much to ask, are you okay or do you need a minute, does it? It would benefit us all, I think, to recognise our humanity whenever and wherever we feel the need to. 
can't wait to see her complete her PhD, which isn't far off now, and to be able to call her Dr. Anderson. Please follow Natalie on Twitter with her handle at Cerebral Nurse, all one word. Thanks for listening. I'm so glad you could join us. If this is your first time listening, then welcome and thanks for joining us. And if you are a returning listener, then thank you for coming back. I hope you're enjoying the experience. If you have any feedback or suggestions, I would love to hear them. What did you enjoy? Who would you like to hear from? Or even would you like to make a guest appearance? Please contact me by email. And until next time, I hope this proves to be critical to your success.